Luke 14, verses 1 to 24. Healing of a man on the Sabbath. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. The parable of the wedding feast. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes to you, he may say, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The parable of the great banquet. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that, excuse me, and at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. <clears throat> so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel the people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. I appreciate Sonia taking on such a lengthy passage, and I appreciate your attention 
uh, to it. I know it's a, a long one and has quite a number of uh, movements within that pericope. So I appreciate your uh, willingness to dive into this text with me this morning. Um, would you just join me in a word of prayer? Father, as we look to your scripture, we ask that our hearts and our minds and our ears would be open, that we would have the ability to receive what you want to have us receive. And I pray that my words might be useful to you to that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So years ago, when I lived in Ohio, I would go to Cincinnati Reds games because they were bad and tickets were cheap. They were my local baseball team, and I went to so many countless games, and I got used to the, uh, the practice of, you know, buying the $6 standing room only ticket or the $12 upper, 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 upper deck, the nosebleed seats, as they say. And I would buy those, but I wouldn't stay there. I wouldn't sit in that seat that was on my ticket because they were not sold out. I would just kind of slowly or quickly just gravitationally pull my way towards the field. And I would go and I would sit here and then maybe I'd move up and I'd see a section that was pretty open. And once you got to that really, you know, the good level, that's when you had to kind of pay attention. When were the guards shifting? When were the ushers who stand there and say, look at your ticket, look at your ticket. They're looking for the 116 section number on your ticket. I had to wait till they were switching and then I'd dash. And I'd get in, and I'd go down and sit in like the $125 seats. There I am with my little $6 ticket, enjoying the $125 view. And sure, if somebody came in and said, oh, you're in my seat, I would go, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I must not be able to read. And then I would get up and I'd move over a row. That's kind of what I got used to doing. Well, let me tell you, one day, my parents were in town. And I thought I would just do the same thing. I even scalped some tickets outside, and I got a great deal, partially because I got three, ticket, three seats in one row and one in another. But it didn't matter to me, because all I need to be is in the game, and then we'll just find where we sit. So I found this really nice area for us, and I sat my friend and my mom and my dad down. Let me tell you what I did not factor into the equation. My dad is not me, and he sees the world differently than I saw the world. And one of us was very flexible, and one of us was our fa my father. And so when we were down there in about the fourth inning, somebody showed up late to said game and said we were in their seats. Oh, the amount of, I, I, I quickly discovered how embarrassed he was and how he did not appreciate being removed from the seat of honor to be kicked out. And to me, that was like the sport of it. Lesson learned, I did a lot of apologizing. And things got smoothed out later. But I recognized that he did not like the dishonor of being kicked out of the good seats. Well, I'm sure he probably would have said, if you want the good seats, let's just buy the good seats. But to me, it was the sport of getting the good seats for $6. Yeah, how many of you would like that game? Some of you probably are flexible with me. I married a person who said, no, we would not do that. We sit in the seat we're given. Eh, we'll figure it out. But this passage made me think of that. And some of you might be thinking, well, which passage are we looking at today? But interestingly enough, this whole scene, 1 through 24, it almost has like three different lessons, and yet they're all connected. 
They're all in the setting of one meal with Jesus. He got invited by the Pharisees to have dinner with them. Why? Well, verse 1 tells us he was being carefully watched. All right, so here he is. This is the rabble rouser. This is the unskilled teacher. This is the one people are talking about. Let's invite him to dinner and see what it is. And it's on the Sabbath. So, of course, there's all the rules and all the issues of how do we have the food cooked the day before. No cooking is going on. All the particularities of all that. So Jesus, he stirs the pot. He sees the moment where there's one, again, this is one of those symposiums. If you weren't here before, uh, very common in the Roman world was uh, kind of an open-air dinner. And so those of the guests would sit and eat, and they'd recline around the, the tables that are all scattered out on the, on the courtyard. And they're all in a reclining position, but there, there was free open-air movement for, for people in the town to come in and sit in and observe. Not watching them eat, but after they eat, they would sit around and talk into the night about ideas about teachings, about thoughts and politics and whatever else that might be on the topic for the evening. And so here's this invited teacher, Jesus. They brought him in. And so many people are coming around and seeing. And there was a man with dropsy. I had no idea what dropsy was. It's an old word for edema. It's basically swelling, uh, whether you're drinking in a lot of water and you're not releasing it and your, your limbs and your, your ankles and feet and stuff, they, they swell up. And it's interesting because you get a great thirst and you just crave more and more water, but your body's not releasing it. It becomes very painful. So that's when Jesus took the opportunity on the Sabbath. Yet again, he did it multiple other times in this gospel where he healed a person on the Sabbath. But he asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So he touched him. He held him. He healed him and sent him on his way. And the interesting thing is they were silent rather than exclaiming, praise God from whom all blessings flow. A man who was suffering is no longer suffering. But we got to remember we're in a different world than they were. See, they were definitely in a world, and this still exists in our world today, but not as much. If you had dropsy, if you had a disease, if you had an illness what would the question be? What did you do wrong? What, did you, what sins had you committed? What did you do to take the favor of God off of your life? And when you are at the home of a leading Pharisee, this is again a social symposium. This is a, 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 a who's who. This is a hobnobbing. This is a networking event. Having the, the sick nearby and associating with them is not good for your social standing. And yet Jesus welcomed him to come up to him and touched him. There wasn't a discussion about, well, what did he do to get into that situation in the first place, which would have been common. Instead, Jesus heals him and sends him on his way, and he quotes the scripture to them. If one of you had a, as a child an oxen that falls into the well on the Sabbath day, would you not immediately pull it out? Because the scripture teaches that you're allowed to do that on the Sabbath. You're allowed to do emergency care on the Sabbath, and it doesn't count as work. So, because eating and dining customs are such a strong barometer of social relations in this ancient world, the ways in which Jesus subverts the social mealtime conventions, he messes up regarding where do you sit. 
He, he messes up what do you do while you're eating. He messes up who is invited. Because he does all that and subverts the norms and the conventions of the day, um, we find that in the teachings that he's about to do, he's doing far more than just um, giving sage wisdom. Instead, he's toppling the familiar world of the ancient Mediterranean and overturning its socially constructed reality, replacing it with what must have been regarded as a scandalous alternative. That's what New Testament scholar Joel Green said of this scene, that Jesus is flipping it all upside down and creating a scandal. So thinking about the scandal, first, he's, he's under suspicion, and then he heals a person on the Sabbath, and they don't know what to do with that. Second, while he was the one being carefully watched, he was actually watching them. In verse 7, he says, how, he noticed how the guests picked places of honor at the table. So he told them a parable. Now, this is kind of one of those parables that doesn't seem like a parable. It seems more like a piece of advice. But let's hear it again. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you might have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, like my father at the Reds game, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. So when you're invited, take the lowest place. So when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all the guests. And he lands this parable with a, 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 an axiom for all. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Interesting. You know, I would honestly say that that is so not scandalous to me. This is not a scandalous teaching to me. Why? Well, I was raised by parents who raised me in the church. From the moment they could carry me in a bassinet into the, into the church building, I was always raised around an ethic of Elevate humility, lower pride. Elevate others, lower yourself. Let others go first, you go last. The, the true seat of honor is the one that ha shows deference. That is so baked into our culture. And I just want to offer it to you that that is a result of Jesus. That is a result of Christendom. That is a result of the Western culture developing so influenced by the teachings of Jesus that this scandalous teaching there does not seem so scandalous to us, does it? It doesn't seem scandalous to say, let others go before you. That's kind of a, now it's turned into a power move of who gets to go last, possibly, I don't know. See, Jesus subverting the role and status of social stratifications, you know, but Though it's still part of our culture now, there still is a part of our culture that does jockey for position, isn't there? All you have to do is watch the State of the Union address and try to see who gets an aisle seat. Because you know what comes with an aisle seat? Camera time. If you ever notice, when, when there's an elected official out, there's probably a, a ranking and jostling for who gets to sit right here or right here. Because what comes with that camera time? Proximity. Proximity to the source of what? Power. And if you're close to power, you get to wield it sooner and next and more. So we still have that in our culture. Um, possibly we have that with where we belong. 
We joined country clubs so that we can go do business. I was, uh, at one point last year, I was this close to joining BOMA, Building, let's see, what, Building Owners and, and uh, Managers Association. Did I own a building? Did I manage one? No, but I worked for a company that serviced them, and they were going to pay thousands of dollars for me to belong to BOMA so I could do what? Go to dinner. Go to dinner wearing the logo. Go to dinner and rub elbows. Go to dinner and make contacts so that we were a known entity, a community presence, a, a donor, all these kind of things. We still do these things even today, don't we? Some of you in your jobs and careers may have done that for a living and done it very well. There's another part of this culture besides um, just the status issues with where you sat. There's also reciprocity. Reciprocity was central to the Roman ecosystem and social culture. If you were invited to dinner, what did you have to do? You had to invite them another time. And so there was a measure of who are we inviting to dinner and will it pay off in the long run? Will it raise my social standing? Will it allow me to um, get better advantage myself? Will, I, will, they, will they return with a nice gift to me? That was baked into, now not just it's an ex, a slightly expected norm, it is baked into the Roman culture. How many of you feel that urge of if you're invited to dinner, you have to make sure you come with something in your hand? And why? Because your mama raised you right. You don't go to somebody's house empty-handed. And then afterwards, you do what? Now, this, is, this one is being lost a little bit. You got to write a thank you note. And I know my nephew has been raised right because even after something, he, he called and apologized that the thank you note hadn't gotten there soon. I'm like, James, you're my nephew. I don't need a thank you note. Well, I'm wrong. Apparently, I do. But Jesus is changing all this with the teachings that he does here. He says, move to a lower place and then let the, the host exalt you. Put yourself in a position where you're not going to be seen. And then you're taking control over your affairs out of your hands and placing them in the host. And that's the parable part of it. See, often when Jesus is talking about a parable, he's using a common everyday story that everybody can relate to, connect with, and understand to teach a spiritual truth about his kingdom. So on one hand, this is very sage advice. Take the low road and let other people exalt you. But on, uh, on another picture, take the low road and let God exalt you. Let God be the one to raise you up. Let God be the one to see you and to commend you. Let God be the one to acknowledge that you were present and that you served. This is what Jesus is teaching these teachers of the law. He continues on after that teaching. By the way, that for the, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Doesn't that sound like the first will be last and the last will be first? So Jesus stays on brand. He stays on point and on message. He doesn't change his kingdom teaching. Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back and you'll be repaid. There's no honor in that. There's just exchange. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Now, what's unique about those folks? 
See, in the past, Jesus was accused of eating with sinners. Jesus was accused of being a drunkard, a socialite, a partier. But now Jesus is expanding the invitation list. Who's invited? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Do that and you will be blessed. Do that and you will re receive glory. You'll be recognized by your Father in heaven. Well, what's unique about this? Again, in a world where we live now and the world that they lived then, poverty was seen as, in part, what did you do to be there? What did you do wrong? And either way, you weren't somebody who could exchange reciprocity. You could not reciprocate. If you were poor, you were invited. You could not um, give back. So in, to invite the poor, to invite the, 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 the invalid, the cripple, to invite the lame and the blind, you're endangering, endangering your own social status by, by being seen with lower class and lower outsider people. You also gain nothing in return, and you even run the, the chance of embarrassing them because you've invited them, given them a gift that they cannot give back, and now they're embarrassed. See how it's not just a one-way, top-down social structure. But Jesus is taking this whole paradigm and saying, break it. Break it all. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So now Jesus takes it to an end-time look. He takes it to the eschatological. He takes it to the world where when God comes back and sets up his kingdom and makes all things right and all things new. And so at that moment, somebody, some unnamed person at the dinner just blurts out, blessed is the one who will eat the feast of the kingdom of God. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks for sharing that. For years, I thought, okay, yeah, that, yep, that, sure. That's a good, but one of the, Joel Green highlighted that he's not conceptualizing that the, that the lame and the poor and the beggars are going to be at that table. He's conceptualizing that how good it will be and blessed for all of us blessed people to be at the banquet table of the Lord, for we are the ones who, what, deserve it. We are the ones who belong so that's where Jesus replies into the next parable. A certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. It was common to give us an initial invitation, clear your schedule for this date, and then on the date that it was ready, say, okay, it's ready, now's the time to come. And so he sent out a servant to say, now's the time to come. And all the people who were invited, all the friends of equal social class, all the property owners, all the, 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 the other social powers, all the other teachers of the law, all who were invited to this banquet declined for a variety of reasons. And I'm sure you have been there. Oh, do we have to go to that wedding? Oh. Do we have to go to that Christmas party? Oh. Can, can we come up with a good excuse? I know for the next month we might be getting out of certain things. Oh, Kathy might be, she, she might have a baby soon. You know, it's a great, it's a great out. Who's going to argue that one, right? They, they, they use some weak things. Uh, one, I just got married. Well, of course you got married. We know when you got married. We were there. 
Oh, I just got some, my favorite is, I just got new oxen. I want to try them out. I don't know what that means. Like, let's go plow a field. I, I don't know what trying out an oxen sounds like, but, it, um, so, but that's what we wanted to do. So all these people, they, they excused their way out, which clearly offended the person. Now, again, in the parable, who is represented by the, the homeowner, by the master? It's God. God is asking and God is inviting the people who belong to the banquet. And that would be God's people. That would be Israel. That would be the teachers and leaders of the law. And that, that would be the people who are considered themselves insiders. And he invited them. But what he's saying is, if you reject me and you don't come to the party and you don't come to the banquet, it's offensive. So he sends his servant out Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town. By the way, is that where you normally look for to uh, populate your dinner parties? Let's go to the streets and alleys of the town. Invite the people who are hiding on, on the margins. Invite the people who are hiding on the side. Go to the, bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The servant comes back, sir, uh, what you ordered is done and there's still room. Master said, go out to the roads and the country lanes. I love the old-fashioned way to go out to the highways and the byways and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I've got some good news for you, friends. Jesus' kingdom has opened its doors wide open. And again, for us, we are so used to hearing that there is no scandal to our ears, to hear that God has opened the doors and opened the gates. But I'm going to guess a majority of us in this room need to be grateful for that open gate policy. Because guess who has been brought in? The sick, the lame, the crippled, the blind Jews. That was a scandal to them in that day, that these people who had something wrong with them are now included on the inside. You know, there's an Old Testament law that there was a certain barrier world that if you had issues, you couldn't get to the closer rings. You were outside certain rings of the temple. And Jesus is breaking that wide open now. Jesus has torn down the curtain between us and God himself. You can see that the good news goes beyond the crippled and the lame and the Jews. But even so far, and again, to our ears, this doesn't ring of scandal. But to this moment, if he had said, oh, by the way, it's not just going to be these folks. It's going to be the Gentiles. It's going to be the dirty heathen. It's going to, it's going to be extended to the Roman oppressor. Okay, now you've gone too far, Jesus. You see, this is the, the reaching of this parable. Those that, didn't, that were invited in the first place chose not to come. Well, uh, the gates are now open, and we're going to the highways, into the byways, into the countryside, and we're inviting in anyone and everyone who was told, you can't come before, you're now invited. You're invited to God's party. You're invited to God's feast. Hmm. If we think ahead, when Jesus was crucified and the, and, the, and, 
and the curtain was torn in two. This signifies that the Holy of Holies is now no longer the singular space where God meets with people. And what did he tell people? He said, you, used to, you, know, you Syrians, you worship up at Jacob's. Well, the, the, the Jews worship in, in Jerusalem, but there is coming a day when we will all worship where? In spirit and in truth. The prophet spoke of a day when God's law and his spirit would be written on the hearts of, of mankind. And now Jesus has opened that. The divided wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, Ephesians 2 tells us, has been torn down. Those who were far from God have now been brought near. Those who were dead have now been made alive. Those who were enemies of God have now been made sons and daughters of the king. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither man nor woman. There is no longer any barrier to our access to God in Christ. All are welcome in Christ. So it appears that that was scandalous, absolutely scandalous to those who were inviting him to dinner and keeping a close eye on him. It started with the scandal of healing someone on the Sabbath and being close to the sick. It continued when he would say, um, why are you jostling for seats? Take the humble road. Don't exalt yourself and let someone else exalt you. And then it culminates with this parable about the banquet of the kingdom is now open to everyone. And that is good news for us, isn't it? That is good news for us, that we don't have to perform. We don't have to be born into the right family. We don't have to have made the right decision when we were young. We can come to God now, and so can you, and so can your family, and so can your neighbor, and so can your enemy. They can come to God. Again, there's a teaching that does not seem too radical to us anymore. Secular and spiritual all kind of rally around this idea that all human beings have value. We rally around the idea that every human being and every human life has worth. Do you know why that's not shocking to us? 2,000 years of Jesus' teachings becoming normative. So much so that even atheists hold his values. If you want to read a phenomenal book about that, Tom Holland wrote a book called Dominion. It's a wonderful book, highlighting how the teachings of Jesus impacted Roman culture and European culture, so that now that which we call Western is really Jesus-influenced. You see, we're no longer having to live in the world of having to be well-connected, to be well-received. Now, the one thing that I want to just kind of just ruminate on at the very end is, what does this mean for the church today? Well, on good news, we open the doors to all. But I want to pose the question, does it set a priority of who we go to first? I don't know. Does it? When I was in seminary, I was asked to do a paper on a church, so I picked a local church that had just been starting up in Philadelphia. And this church was wonderful, and it was dynamic, it was well-funded, it had leaders with great experience and, and reputation already, it was phenomenal. They were targeting to connect with um, the intellectuals of Penn and Drexel. They were targeting to connect with professors and with college students, and not just college students, Penn college students. 
Ivy League students, elite, the elite of the elite. And one of the things I was asking is, but you're also situated in West Philadelphia, and if you know anything about West Philadelphia, while there's some great wealth in these great institutions of education, there's also great poverty and great depression and great violence. And I said, I asked the, the leaders when I was interviewing them, what is your strategy plan to reach out to the have-nots? And they said, well, we're gonna try to grow ourselves to a place of stability, so then we have something to offer through a side ministry to those, and I was like, oh. And I thought, well, you're reaching out to the university, but the university isn't just students and professors. It isn't just PhDs and future PhDs. It's also staff and clerical and custodial and cafeteria and housekeeping. And like, are we reaching out to the university? And I thought that was a flaw because what I did see was I thought that they were taking a Jesus gospel but running it through our worldview of trickle-down spirituality. And I, that's not the only place I saw it. When I was growing up, I was a, a leader in a fellowship of Christian athletes. But the whole methodology at that time of fellowship of Christian athletes was if only we can get sports, high, like successful sports people to confess Christ and give their testimony because our world looks up to sports people. So let's, and I, have, I think it's wonderful for sports people to give their testimony for Jesus. But is that our strategy for reaching the, lo, the least of these? I'm a Florida Gator fan, as I said earlier today. Back in the early 2000s, we had a guy named Tim Tebow, who's probably one of the most amazing Christian athletes I've ever heard of, met, followed. He's as real deal as you can get. But is that our strategy for reaching the world, is if we can just get a celebrity to proclaim? See, it's so easy. I want to. It's so easy for me to fall into that trap. It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of, you know, we just need a dynamic Preacher, we just need a famous person to tell everybody it's okay to believe in Jesus. And then the masses will believe in Jesus. Then I look at what Jesus said. And he said, go to the highways and byways. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And what he's offering to those men around that table that night who are the influencers, who are the leaders, who are the powerful. This is God's real kingdom. Join. But if we are powerful and we join it, we also have to recognize we have to do what? Give it up. We have to give up the old ways of who you know is who you are. We have to give up the old ways of promoting ourselves, even for the glory of God. And that's the hard part. That's why Jesus, I think that's why Jesus said it's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because we don't just receive the blessings, we have to give up our blessings. Now, I don't know how it all works out. I'm not saying this is a strict teaching for what we ought to do, but I think it is food for thought as we are moving forward as a church, as our vision team is about to start meeting, as we gather together and we start thinking through, what does it mean to be an outpost of God's people? Well, it means the doors are wide open, and there might be a prioritization of how we proclaim the good news to the powerful by reaching out to those who have nothing to offer us first. I believe that's what the text might be teaching us here today. Let us think about it. Let us pray about it. 
Let us search our hearts and let us be faithful to what we hear God leading us to do. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom as this, this teaching sounds so easy at first and yet then it, it can become so difficult. God, we pray that you would give us guidance and, and lead us as we wrestle through. Lord, we pray for the vision team that we ask that you would give them and their prayer partners just great wisdom leading from your spirit as we try to, to look through how do you want to be your church today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.